0: We, we need to see Jesus in everything. And that's how we get to know him. Does that make sense?
1: Welcome listeners. Uh, my name is Matthew Kolhep. I'm pleased to be a guest on the podcast that they might know. And we're here with author and uh, host of this podcast, Joe Dursa. Welcome, Joe Dursa, to your own podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great today, Matt. It's really wonderful to have you on this show, and I'm looking forward to this interview. Yeah, I'm honored to be on here, um, to have read your book, and now to be able to ask you all the questions that have been burning in my heart to ask you. So let's just get right into the book. Today we're looking at uh, chapter six of your book, the Jesus You Need to Know. And this chapter is titled, Jesus is Defining Hour, The Definition of God's Love. Uh, so let's get right into talking about it. Um, first of all, you want to just talk about maybe how you thought about this section, this chapter, wh- why you wanted to, to focus on it, why you chose it. This is the Jesus You Need to Know. So you only had a limited amount of chapters. So why did you uh, write about this this topic on the chapter 6?
0: Great question, Matt. <clears throat> so... Uh, Coming across uh, John chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, and I quote, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, it's it's the thing about scripture, and really anything in life, you know, you can just... Pass over things, pass over words, and not give it the thought that it really deserves. And when it comes to a book written inspired by Almighty God, by which everything is created, running over words—well, it may be a human thing to do, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's not getting the most out of what we should, you know. The most is in there. Uh, getting the most out is really important. So. In this verse, you know, I've thought about it and read it so many times, and this one thing, knowing that his hour had come, you know, you can just run over that and not even think about it, but uh, I thought about it, and you know, what does it mean, the hour, and is it it just 60 seconds inside of a, in 60 minutes inside of an hour, you know, is it just talking time, you know, or is there much more meaning in, in the hour? And I found that there is much more meaning in the hour. And so defining God's love is defining what took place during that hour.
1: That's good. Yeah, and I think um, my, my biggest question from that is you're talking about Jesus' defining hour. But this is, you know, we're in chapter 6. We're not in chapter 1. You know, this was, took place at the end of, of most of the Gospels that were written about Jesus' life. So um, how, what do you... Maybe just briefly, what is it, what would you just say? If someone asks you, what does it mean that this is Jesus' defining hour um, that you talk about, which is from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross, uh, what would you say, okay, this is why it's a defining hour? Because um, yeah, how, how should we think about that? How should we think about that maybe for the rest of your book and the rest of Jesus' life and the rest of what he did on earth is how can we think of this as this is the defining hour of his life? Okay, great question, Matt. So, uh,
0: I said, is it 60 minutes, which make up the hour? Actually, it's more than an hour. It's actually, and I bring this out in in chapter 6, it's really that period of time from Gethsemane, right through Jesus' death on the cross, in which he's led out by men, goes through the hideous trial, which was... Just really a witch hunt. Uh, It was made up. It was lies told. There was nothing just about anything that took place during that hour. And leading up to the cross was really man's part of rejecting the Messiah, the one sent by God the Father, um, to fulfill his plan to save men from the penalty and the presence and the power of sin. Um. And that was leading up to the cross. But actually, the last three hours, because he hung on the cross for six hours, but the last three hours on the cross was that time when God the Father took out on the Son what we would have taken an eternity to pay. You know, everything about the gospel, everything about the cross, everything about God as recorded in the Word of God is incomprehensible. To the human mind. And by the way, that's a big factor in believing that the Bible comes from God. Anybody can sit down and write what we can reason in our own minds. Yeah, there's fiction and what would it be like to go to the stars and you can't know. But again, the stars and the heavens were created by God. Everything miraculous, everything bigger than you can even comprehend, you know that that has a divine or origin. And all the concepts throughout the Bible and this defining hour boggles the mind to think about it and the way it's spoken about in in the scripture. So my first basic primary answer to that question is this defining hour is defined by a sacrifice that cannot be comprehended.
1: That's good. And yeah, I think yeah, this is the hour to focus on how do we understand why Jesus came to earth how do we understand our own sin, like you said, and then how do we understand God's love? So let's let's go deeper. I think you have some helpful sections to kind of think through why is this a defining hour. And the first one that you talk about is that it defined God's wrath. I think this is maybe the, the most misunderstood thing about Jesus' dying on the cross. People exalt the fact that he was Things happened to him on the Roman Roman crucifixion. But yeah, why don't you talk about what actually does it mean that God's wrath was poured out on God, on Jesus? And you even say that Jesus was treated as a sinner.
0: I I, I wanna read from the book a little bit, but before I do, um, I wanna I wanna ask you, when you think about Jesus' sacrifice, and you don't have to like it you know, seminary deep on this or anything, but when you think about Jesus's death, sacrifice, what does that mean to you? How do you think
1: about that? I think I think about my own sin and how I, I deserve what I deserve, and then I picture that as what he took on. So uh, how I've sinned and turned away from God, um, and then God justly punishes those who have, who have turned away from him, which is all man. And so... The punishment that I deserved was was placed on Christ, and the way that God should have treated me was put on Christ. I think, on the most basic level, that's how I think about Jesus' death and sacrifices. How what did He do as it happens to uh, to my own sin? So He took on the. That's why I think the phrase "the weight of sin." He took on the weight of my sin. So that weight would be the way that God would treat me, and the wrath that I would deserve for
0: it. How did you come to this conclusion about what you? How old are you now? Twenty one. <laughs> so like how 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 much bad stuff did you do that you know you refer to this as like what you think you deserve?
1: yeah, I think for the longest time, I knew the phrase "Jesus died for my sins," but I did not understand what sin was, so I think the biggest thing for me was like what you just said that i well how do i how do you understand that you've actually sinned um and that's the biggest understanding if you don't understand what sin is, then the phrase "Jesus died for my sins," which is what happened on the cross will mean nothing to you. And so I think, yeah, growing up until I was around 18, I didn't I didn't grasp the idea of sin and how offensive it is to God. Because um, really, you know, what did I really do? I didn't, the things that are really outward, drinking or smoking or whatever, you know, I didn't do the things that seemed obvious to me as bad. Uh, but really, what is the offense? The offense is, is how are we sinning against God? And so when I think about my sin, how I've, uh, What really the issue is, I've chosen myself over God. I've said, God, you are not uh, worthy to be worshipped. You're not worthy uh, for me to love you. I'd rather love myself or love other things. That's kind of the idea, placing myself or idols at the top of my life. That's why sin is so offensive to God. And so when you think about it that way, um, turning away from God, spitting in his face, really, uh, rejecting him, um, like those who rejected him and crucified Jesus, that's how I think about a sin and in that in that context that's why Jesus dying for my sins means something.
0: Thank you that's an awesome answer. And with that in view uh, I'm going to read just a little bit from chapter 6 and page 73 beginning John began his account of Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17:1 with these words, quote, "And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, "Father, the hour has come. Quote. It is not unusual for a person who is conscious of heaven as the abode of God to lift up his eyes to heaven when praying. Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven is a beautiful picture when we consider the words from Psalm 14:2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. End quote. From this verse we understand that God was looking down to earth to find someone seeking after him and in John 17:1 we are told that the incarnate son of God was looking up toward heaven as he was about to utter the most striking prayer ever recorded in human history. The concept is overwhelming really when we consider that as the savior the omnipresent God was reduced to a man on a vast planet that itself is infinitesimally small, like a speck in the vastness of an incomprehensible cosmos. Having become a man, the never-ending God found a way to express his love through infinite humility. As Jesus faced the cross, he looked into the night sky and beheld through human eyes the physical darkness. But in his spirit, he faced the utmost darkness of all. He was to take the place of sinners and experience the wrath of God as it was unleashed upon him. Such a scene is recorded in Jesus' own words in Matthew twenty-five thirty: Quote, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. End quote. To be cast away from the loving presence of God is to be cast into outer darkness. As God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, it is to be cast out of his favor, to be hated, abhorred, and despised by him. And the chapter goes on. So defining the love of God, defining the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness, the justice of God, is is expressed in this picture of God the Son who is in an eternal and perfect loving relationship with God before time was created in an eternal state so now he, we can't even we can't comprehend how God the first person loves God the second person father and son as it's expressed to us The son eternally coming from the father. Like we understand a son coming from a father. And made in the same image. The same essence. The same person. uh, Type of person. In this case, it's divine God. And only in this case, infinite and perfect love. So now this is God in love with God in eternity. And now taking the place of the sinner who is actually hated for being evil and being punished for the evil that he has done. And as you perfectly expressed it, is in a rejecting of God and saying, look, I'm going to do my own way, have my own way, do my own thing. I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter how much it displeases you. Now think about it. The son is taking the penalty for our sin. So the father had to see the son as if he were us. So now if you're the son and you love the father perfectly, which means you desire his pleasure and you desire his respect and you desire his love, and instead you're getting the opposite. You're getting anger. You're getting wrath. You're getting displeasure. And all of that was placed on the Son. Now, those are just words to us. But that was an experience to Christ. And it was an experience to the Father. So, men take lightly. Oh yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the world. This is the last thing on earth that any man should ever take lightly. Because it was anything but light. So that's the beginning of my answer for the defining hour.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think I was moved by how you were describing that. But I think my first thought is how can, you know, a young man, only 21 and, you know, walking with the Lord for around three years, how how have you seen since you were a young Christian, uh, how do you understand those big concepts you're talking about? There's God's wrath. How have you seen your own, uh, understanding of your own sin, understanding of what does it mean that God actually poured his wrath out on Jesus? How have you seen yourself kind of understand that more um, and actually know that? Because this, you know, this is a big part of Jesus' defining hour on the cross, right?
0: Your questions are getting better and better there, buddy. <laughs> the, the reason that that question is uh, good is because you, you're touching on something that's very important. Um, you know, we're a, an intellectually driven society. We love knowledge, kind of like the old Greeks. Really, you know, they'd like to stand on Mars Hill and you know come up with new philosophies and think about things. And it kind of makes you feel good. Some people, especially when they're thinking big thoughts, you know, and that's that's good because that's in a way that's the way God made us. He made us to think. He made us to reason, which is. Sometimes thinking is totally without reason. Um, But there's more to life than just thinking. There's experiencing. And as you grow older, the one thing that you experience is that no matter how much grace that you receive from God, no matter how much you think about how much Jesus sacrificed and suffered for your sins, it doesn't stop you from completely. It doesn't stop you completely from sinning. And so that sin in the face of what Jesus did as you contemplate from the scriptures in so many passages in so many ways and so much color can be added to it. How Jesus suffered and then you continue, not as you did and lessons over time, but it seems worse over time because you're still doing it. And, and the main message there is that unless God makes us holy, we won't be holy. This is a divine miracle. It's a divine act. It's a divine accomplishment in placing his grace, his forgiveness, and his transforming love upon an individual. And that's what he does. He transforms those whom he saves. And so as you look at your sin that continues you may be better you may be getting better in some in some ways but it's you're not perfect you're still thinking you might have a jealous thought you might have anger towards a guy who cut you off on the road you you know and you and you see it and you oh i'm sorry and you repent immediately maybe and and you and you go on and it's still there and you realize how big the grace is because had he not saved us we would never repent. We would never turn from our sin, and we would go on sinning for all eternity. Which is the big reason why people suffer for all eternity, because they never stop. You can't, without God's grace. We're we're sinners. That's what we are. The saying is, uh, you know, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not. I am not am not i do not sin. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. I am, that's what I am. I'm a sinner. And as, that, as a result of that, I, sins happen. And so that uh, transformation of going from sinner to saint is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's divine work. But because it doesn't stop in this life, you just appreciate the grace more and more and more and realize one day it's going to come to a complete end. And God will make a complete, whether we die now or Jesus comes back and the end comes, uh, That's it will come to an end, and, and you appreciate the grace a lot more. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And I think that's been comforting. And it's something I've seen in a lot of older Christians is, although they seem a lot holier than me, they also seem more aware of their sin, talk about more of how they fail and need God's grace every day. So I've seen that in your life, Joe, and so I think... Yeah, that's definitely encouraging. One last question on God's wrath, and I don't want to get to the rest of some of the material in, in this book, but what would you say to someone who they look at some of your depictions of talking about God's wrath, talking about hell, and they say, you know, we shouldn't really think about hell, you know, God's wrath. We should just more think about God's love. And, you know, the depictions in hell are just hard to understand. Maybe they're out there. We don't even know what they really look like. What would you say? Why should we think about hell? Why should we think about eternal judgment and God's wrath when we think about Jesus, especially on the cross. Well,
0: Mm. let's put it this way. If you had a son, and your son actually gave his life to save someone else, so the person, let's say, is going across the street, wasn't watching, and your son pushes him out of the way, gets struck by the car, and his life comes to an end, how would you feel if someone said, you know, you talk about your son too much. All right, he, he died, he saved my son from dying. But you know, let's not you know, let's not make too much of a case out of it. Not only that, I mean it's not a pretty thing to talk about. So, you know, maybe you should
1: just like chill out. How would you feel? I would feel like you're dishonoring my son.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, th- that's the reason that I would give. Dishonoring the son. The the son, for one thing, uh, he suffered too much to to just dismiss it, or because it's uncomfortable, or because it would make people feel awkward, is not a good enough reason to not talk about it. So let me read something else from, from this chapter. Furthermore, when God came down from Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, he was present in the darkness. Darkness in one sense represents the judgment of God that comes upon all those who break his law, Exodus 20:21. 20, what irony it is that Jesus, the, ex- the eternal God, who alone is worthy to be praised, should be treated in so worthless a way as to be thrown into the outer darkness, that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In contrast to this, there would be a day when a new song would be sung to this same Jesus. Quote, Worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Revelations 15:12. But before that day could come, Jesus had to first endure the horrors of the crucifixion, as he bore the punishment, penalty, and pain that our sin produced. Jesus dwelt in incomprehensible light and walked in the Father's love. And of him we read, quote, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. End quote. However, as the sin bearer, he would be cast into outer darkness far from the Father's favor. The Bible records his cry quote, Do not remain far away from me, for trouble is near, and I have no one to help. End quote, Psalm twenty two, eleven. So again, you know, I'm 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 bringing the, the the relevance of Jesus' sufferings and being cast out of God the Father's presence. Why? Because of our the penalty for the payment of our sin. I don't think we we don't even begin to approach talking about this enough. You know, it, it saddens me a little bit. When we talk about Christianity and we don't talk about the Son, we don't talk about Jesus the way we are. We, we should talk about Jesus more than anything. We're more likely to talk about some teaching of Jesus or some theological thought. or you know, and, and all of it's good, and talking about all of that is good. But, but what about Jesus himself? how he lived, how he died, how he loved us, how he forgives us, all of that. How he how interacted with people. We have four Gospels in which he interacted with people and we can see how he behaved. I mean, that, that's the important part. Of the, it's all important, but that is really important.
1: That's good. Actually, I'd like to, to jump off of what you just said and knowing more of Jesus. How do you think, how can we take this defining hour, you know, we just talked about God's wrath, how can we take that, and understand more for ourselves, you know, know Jesus more as through this defining out. How do we do that, kind of that high concept, high theology, and bring it to, to our hearts?
0: Well, uh, you know, marriage uh, or relationships kind of teach us in a way what's really important in life. Uh, Looking at marriage, you have two people, two individual people, independent from one another. They grow up, maybe they don't even know each other until they're in their 30s or 40s, and they meet, and they, I don't know, they just hit it off. They start to like one another, want to spend time together, and then they decide, well, let's make this a commitment, and let's get married and live together the rest of our lives. Let's share our home, our food Let's have children together, let's parent them together, let's make decisions together where we're going to live, how we're going to live, all together. And things happen. And in the course of life, maybe someone gets sick, you know, you have a child, you have good, you have bad, and in all of that, you're together in the same place and you're sharing life together. And you see each other's weaknesses, you see each other's strengths, you draw on their strength, you get drained by their weaknesses, you're living life together. So in that preliminary way, in that way in which we get to know one another, we're really meant to get to know God. In this life, we're, we live in, in in this life much apart from God. A day is coming when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth And we'd be literally in God's presence all the time, just kind of like two people who are married. Um, Now we get the opportunity to live by faith and to trust God when things get tough and when things are good, to give him praise and glory, not just because we need him, but because we love him and we recognize he's doing the good in our lives. Or in all of those experiences that we go through, we should understand That uh, God is a part of that. And when we read in the scriptures how he treated other people, we can understand how he's treating us. And what he expects and what he's giving. And, And in all of that, we're learning from him. If we're reading the scripture, if we're meditating on it, if we're seeking it when we're in hard times, when we're going through trials, when we're being tempted, when we're facing the enemy, the flesh, the world, the devil... We, we need to see Jesus in everything, and that's how we get to know him. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. In some ways, it makes sense. In some ways, I think it's hard to fathom. I think one, my friend recently told me that, that he sees, the way he sees Jesus, it feels really vague, and he wants more and more to be clear and clearer that he can know Jesus more and more. That's really the aim, the end of our lives, to be with him in eternal life and to know him fully. But in this life, we should feel we don't know him fully. Um, so I think that's, as we continue on talking about these different sections, I think that's kind of the aim we'd love for all our listeners to just think about is, do you really know Jesus or is this just information we're going over? And I think that's really more of what we want to see is, do you really know uh, Jesus in these ways? But um, so let's continue on, um, kind of jumping back into the book. The second section you talked about is uh, false religious worship. And you specifically call out the Pharisees in Jesus' time who worshipped doing these practices. You know, the temple, the glorification of the temple. Um, but how do we take, how does that apply to us in, in this age? How do we look at the world in this age? How does Jesus, what he did on the cross, have anything to do with kind of the false religious worship you see now?
0: Well, again, another great question. <clears throat> so let me uh, start with this uh, opening, uh, uh, way I started in this section Quote, there was an hour, a moment in time, when Francis Scott Key stood awe at what his eyes beheld, and his words recount his thoughts. Quote, oh, say, can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and broad stars through the perilous fight, or the ramparts we watched, were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of of the brave. Francis Scott Key beheld the uncommon valor as the men of Fort McHenry sustained bombardment throughout the night but would not surrender. Their character, as they stood in harm's way, was like a beacon of light to an act of bravery. Such men stand head and shoulders above those of us who have been never had to face the brutality of war. There are countless memorable events in history that stand out far beyond the mundane occurrences of our normal lives. One event stands out infinitely further than all unforgettable events. And Jesus made note of that particular moment when he said, Father, the hour has come. So I read that because I want to I understand that Jesus was heroic. He was brave. But equally, he was true. He spoke truth. So when he confronts religious leaders, when he confronts religion Which is not true, which is fake, which is false. He's not doing it to be cynical or critical or cruel. He's doing it to make the truth known. So like you made that comment a minute ago, a bit ago, when you were talking about you know, what your friend how he sees well that wasn't the one, but the the one about the question that you asked me about Religious People Why why is it That you know You're talking About You know Jesus' sacrifice The blood Um, I actually Sat next to a man We were on a On a board one time We were We were talking And this was another Minister at at the university And he And he was saying How that Jesus' Sacrifice Was a way of Child abuse It was The divine Father being Cruel to the divine son. I mean, there's incredibly bad ways of looking at at, at the Bible and at religion. And, and this is what Jesus confronted when he was a man. He confronted religion that didn't have the heart of God in view. Why did the religious leaders, out of jealousy, make sure that the Romans put him to death? So why it is that the religious leaders did this is because... They're false. Um, you know, Jesus said in chapter 10, you know, that there's hirelings. They come for pay. They're not coming because they love Jesus. They're not coming because they've been born again. They've repented of sin. They're coming because it's what they know to do. They come for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, they're not real disciples of Christ. They're not real religious leaders who have Christ's desires at the bottom of the motivations and uh, the intent of their heart. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm judging anyone in specific. I'm saying this because Jesus said it. I'm saying because Jesus throughout the Gospels confronted the religious leaders of his day as John the Baptist did. John the Baptist looked at the religious leaders of his day and said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus said, to that day, John was the greatest of all the prophets. He was the greatest of all the men. Why? Because he he loved the appearing of Christ. He was the prophet who heralded the coming of the Messiah. Not all men who wear collars and who stand in churches and who represent Christ actually represent Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Many will come in my name and saying, I'm here, I'm here. Do not follow them. So that has to be a warning that has to go out. You don't just go to church. And because it's under the umbrella of Christianity, that that means it's a Christian church. No, no. There has to be a whole lot more depth. First of all, you have to get to know your Bible. You have to get to know what you're looking for. You have to get to know a person who sees and understands Jesus Christ in truth. And when they're following Christ, then it's okay to come alongside and follow with them. Does that that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that does. I think, yeah, the more I've seen, people would say when I was younger, well, I could see myself, you know, crucifying Jesus or being a Pharisee. And that just made no sense to me because I would look at the disciples and say, or other people and be like, they just seem like idiots to me. And I think the more I've grown in my walk is seeing that I really am these people naturally by this false religion. But through uh, Christ's love, I I can be changed. So um, let's just get into the the last question, um, kind of talking about how this defines God's self-sacrificial love. I think my temptation when I think about uh, what Jesus did on the cross is to think, Um, Jesus was self-sacrificing in his love, so let me be self-sacrificing to others. Let me give to other people. Let me give my time. And in that way, I'm going to honor Jesus. Um, How would you maybe disagree or agree with that idea when you think about um, what does it really mean to know uh, God's self-sacrificial love for yourself? What does it really mean to know Jesus through this defining hour?
0: Well, there's many places I could go. All throughout the New Testament I'm going to go to Romans chapter 12 Where it says Let me turn to it really quick Romans chapter 12 And, 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 and verse 1 it's a, it's a great After you know 11 chapters Of strong theology He comes to Okay now we're going to practice This And so he says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God we've we've received mercy from God and so having that in view to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship now look there's offering to God what we want to offer to God when i was in a religious institution when i was a child when i was i was roman catholic and it would come time for Lent, and a time at Lent you were, you know, required. You were asked to sacrifice something, and I was so committed and such a big Christian that I would give up advertisements on television. <laughs> you know, that was my hypocrisy in a small, t- tiny way, of h- what a hypocrite I was as a Roman Catholic. Brought up in the Roman Catholic Church. Superficial, hypo- hypocritical, you know, according to my own desire. Look, we're supposed to be made in the image of God. But what we do is we make God in our image. We make into him into what we want him to be. But this verse is then followed by another verse in chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I could give you an answer, and I could tell you something that might even be pleasant in a way that would be a way to imitate Christ by sacrificing yourself, but maybe it isn't re- wouldn't be really a sacrifice. What's what's a sacrifice for me? May not be a sacrifice for you. Or there's some things we could probably think up that would be sacrificial for both of us. But what I'm point I'm making here is, you know, what we're looking at is intimacy with Christ, intimacy with God, and out of that intimate relationship in which we read the Word of God, we understand what His pleasures are, what He desires. That has to be then placed into your particular specific life. Some men are called to the mission field, some are not. You know, they they pack up their clothes, they leave their families in times past when it wasn't easy to get on a plane and you would have to go and it would take months, you know, and you would go overseas and you never think about even coming back. And people would make those types of sacrifices and they still make them today. People sacrifice their lives. I'm going to go over there to this people that hate us normally, and I'm going to present Christ to them, and I'm probably going to lose my head. And they do. You know, what it is for you, I don't know. What it is for me, I'm I'm trying to work that out. You know, right now we're thinking about moving in retirement and what that's going to look like. And so it's like, you know, do I go the easy way? Do I do what would be most nice for me? Or do I do something which might be more difficult, but it would be more p- pleasing to God? And that really is the bottom line. What is going to please God? What do I think and I hope and I trust that I will do that will actually, in the end here, well done, good and faithful servant? That's what we're looking for. We're looking to be servants for Christ. you like to add anything to that?
1: Um, I think the only thing I would add is I think it's out of uh, not just even just doing it to just doing it to do it for God or do it for something. uh, Feel good. Um, I think really, I think you touched on intimacy really means that we're motivated by Christ's love and really um, knowing Christ's love really changes our heart. I think it affects our heart first, gives us joy, and that leads to obedience. That leads to to a heart that wants to serve God, that wants to to glorify Him. And so I think that's more of the the difference between you know what we see in the Pharisees or ourselves before we were Christians, is people who want to please uh, just some longing or satisfaction in our heart to, to feel good. Um, I think that's a big difference. Is does knowing Christ, is that the end? Is that the end in the way we do it? Um, is that the thing that's motivating what we do? I think that's a big difference. I think that's a a difficult truth, but that's why um, we would love for, for you guys to check out more of this book, um, The Jesus You Need to Know. Um, I've learned a lot, um, and you can find that on Amazon. You can also check out uh, Joe's website, which is also called The Jesus You Need to Know. For more information, we would love nothing more than you to contact uh, Joe and, and talk more. What does, this, what does this mean for your life? What does it mean that uh, for you to know Jesus? Um, and so uh, this is us uh, signing off this is that they might know uh, joe any last words well, well that
0: is the jesus you need to know dot com and i do want to thank you for being on the show and interviewing me and thank you for those great questions and comments
1: and uh, we're gonna have to do this again <laughs> thanks joe it's been an honor being on your podcast